0: Welcome to the AOCPP podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals where we, alongside guest hosts, share with you the latest in child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding but with government regulation changing daily we realise not all frontline professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast to give you what you need to stay informed. Today we have a special episode for you, where we take a more focused look at singular issues that child protection professionals need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. But first let's hear a few words from the AOCPP team.
1: Hello, I'm Peter Sybotham and I'm a trustee of the association and co-editor of Child Abuse Review. And I'm really excited to be able to tell you about an event that's coming up on August the 5th of an online conference that we're hosting on abusive head trauma. This is something that has come out of our work with the journal. And our special issue of the journal for this year is on abusive head trauma. And we've had two guest editors, Vince Peluski from the States and Gabby Ottoman from Sweden, have pulled together a really great special issue with papers looking at work on recognition, response and prevention of abusive head trauma. And when we saw the content of these papers, we thought it would be really great to pull this learning together in an online conference. It's free for members to join and £30 for non-members and places are filling up fast. So we hope that you will sign up for this and join us on the 5th of August for this really exciting conference. Thanks very much.
0: Hi, I'm Tammy Banks, the interim consultant director of the Association of Child Protection Professionals, and your host for today. In today's episode, I have the privilege of talking with Warren Larkin about trauma, adversity, and resilience in the context of a public health crisis, and we'll be looking at the Resilience Task Force, a campaign which Warren will be leading. Prior to founding Warren Larkin Associates, Warren spent twenty-four years in the NHS predominantly working with individuals and families experiencing serious mental health difficulties, first as an assistant and then as a clinical psychologist. Warren then spent five years as clinical network director, responsible for children and family services across Lancashire. It is this experience that led to his passion for public health and prevention work. More recently, Warren is a consultant clinical psychologist and a visiting professor at Sunderland University where he works with the Faculty of Health and Sciences and Wellbeing to develop their research programme and training curricula. He has a long-standing interest in the relationship between childhood adversity and outcomes later in life, and has published numerous research on the topics of adverse childhood experiences, trauma and psychosis. Most recently, Warren developed the routine inquiry about adversity, reach, approach, as a way of assisting organisations to become more trauma-informed and to train professionals to ask routinely about adversity in their everyday practice. It is my pleasure to talk to Warren today about the psychosocial aftermath of COVID and what we can do about it, and specifically about the Resilience Task Force, a campaign that he'll be leading, and we'll be finding out how the Association of Child Protection Professionals and you as our members can help. Thank you for speaking to us today, Warren. It's great to have you here.
2: Hello, Tammy. How are you doing?
0: I'm good, thanks. How are you?
2: Yeah, I'm all right. I'm a bit hot.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, certainly warm at the moment.
2: It's our job to comment on the weather, isn't it, when we start off, I think. I think it's a uh, British tradition.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, without a doubt.
2: <laughs> without a doubt. So we've got that out of the way anyway. We can talk about proper stuff now.
0: Well, it's fantastic to have you here and I'm really looking forward to hearing about some of your passions, some of your experience and also about the Resilience Task Force and actually how we can help at the AOCPP, how our members can help and how we can campaign together as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: How was your introduction? How's it hearing somebody talk about you?
2: (laughs) Well, it's like you just read my mind, actually, because I was just thinking it is a bit odd hearing somebody talk about your career and what you've done and things like that. So that's why I always put in my biography at the end that I have intermittent imposter syndrome, because I frequently wonder how I ended up where I am doing what I'm doing. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I can certainly feel your pain there. But was there anything that you'd like to add or anything I missed in particular?
2: I don't think so. I think you've pretty much covered most of the key things. I suppose the only other thing to say is that my journey started working on the the old long stay wards at Presswich Hospital. So I've kind of gone from seeing the end of the asylum movement to moving through my career in the NHS as a clinician and then as a part-time academic and then as a manager, then as a director and being involved in policy and then coming to a point where I realised that actually the only real solution is prevention, The, the only real end point has to be prevention and and mitigation of adversity and trauma we can't keep picking up the pieces so um, yeah so it's good to hear that introduction because it reminds me that from the minute that I walked into that hospital ward at Presswich I kind of recognized that we had to change things you know we had to do better and um, locking people up in a hospital wasn't a solution.
0: Absolutely and it's really good to hear you say that because I agree with you I think there's been quite a journey over the last 10-20 years and a journey of realisation and recognition of how that really isn't what's best for people and it's interesting when you talk about that's where you started and then you finish with actually I realise that prevention is key because that's so powerful but sometimes it takes us a little bit of time to actually recognise how it is stepping back joining together as a community and working towards prevention that actually will interrupt the next generation of abuse?
2: Oh, completely. My epiphany really was, well, there were two things. One was when I worked in the hospital, and um, I looked into the records of the people I was working with, and the only thing they had in common, other than the fact that none of them were ever getting out of there, was that most of them had experienced adversity in their life, some kind of trauma. That was the first epiphany. And then I spent the next sort of 15 to 20 years trying to develop interventions for people with psychosis and trauma, which was quite niche. And then when I took my director job for children and family services, I became responsible for health visiting and school nursing and sexual health services and CAMs and things like that. That was the second epiphany because I realized that my aspirations to develop more and better therapies for people with a first episode of psychosis and their families who are experiencing trauma was pretty you know whilst that's valuable work probably I actually realized that I'd kind of been in a bit of a silo for a long time and that there were already interventions around for people but the problem was they couldn't access them so my perspective shifted completely when I started that job and I went out with health visitors I spent several days just shadowing health visitors and working with colleagues in public health and It just made me realise that the only real shift in society that we need is to focus on families and giving children the best start in life. So for me, that was mind-blowing, you know. I realised that we have to move upstream.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and I I completely agree with you there, because in my history, and I've got an operational and then kind of moving into a more strategic role. So as I've worked in similar fields to yourself, but more so in homelessness and marginalisation and complex needs, and then with people convicted of offences, I've seen exactly the same as what you're saying there, that actually those connections between the groups, it is generally trauma and adverse childhood experiences. And that recognition, similar to yourself, of actually starting to work in a bubble and really helping the people directly that you're working with. But then as you go through your career, recognizing all of these interconnections and thinking actually, yeah, completely. there's got to be more to this, there's got to be a way that we can prevent it. Because actually yeah. now, 20 odd years on, I'm seeing connected family members and the children that were born when yeah. their parents were children yeah. and yeah. such like coming through again and again.
2: It's great hearing you say that because it just makes me reflect even more and I think I don't think I could be doing the work that I'm doing now had I not been through that process of seeing hundreds, probably thousands of individuals and families who were struggling with serious mental health problems and the consequences of it, because it was through that process of understanding the impact on people and seeing that actually, almost without exception, something adverse or traumatic had happened to them that I ended up doing what I'm doing now. You know, I think I had to go through that process in order to see that actually prevention is the real prize. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think you have that perspective at the beginning of your career. You know, you're so focused on becoming a social worker or a clinical psychologist or whatever it is that you can't possibly see that much perspective, I don't think, which is why I think many politicians perhaps don't fully appreciate and understand the possibilities for prevention.
0: Yeah. Maybe as well part of that is that systems aren't set up to help us see this either the systems that we talk about with regards to local authority or criminal justice or yeah. clinical care and things like that, they generally still operate quite siloed. Yeah, and so it yeah. doesn't necessarily play to stand back and look at the bigger picture. It plays to work with the people in front of you to the best of your ability. Yeah,
2: yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's both structural, isn't it, that we do operate in silos. And also we have different ideologies, you know, so. When I was working in the NHS, one of my constant sort of uh, frustrations was the way when I was trying to advocate on behalf of the CAMS service and the hospital, the children's hospital, we were forever at odds with social care colleagues when we had young people in hospital beds that needed an appropriate placement. So we were forever hitting each other head on with this young person hasn't got a mental health problem. They've suffered trauma in their life and they're struggling to cope and that's why they're behaving this way. They're vulnerable, but they're not mentally ill so actually putting them into a psychiatric hospital is not really going to do them a lot of good whereas the social care response at the time was well they must be mentally ill because they're behaving in this way yeah. and it was kind of like we just didn't understand each other's worlds and it was not to the benefit of the young person and it was almost like well who, whose responsibility is to solve this problem when actually it should be all of our collective responsibility to solve this problem you know for the well-being of that young person and the family but frequently you'd end up in those situations where there's kind of two systems just didn't didn't gel or didn't have an appropriate collaborative way of working. I'm not saying that was always the case you know we had a lot of excellent collaboration but that was a frequent theme just a yeah. complete difference in ideology at times.
0: Yeah and a different language a different understanding. Yeah,
2: different culture yeah.
0: Yeah quite often we found ourselves within the work with 16 17 year olds in homelessness services And we found ourselves actually right in the middle of that with clinicians saying, well, actually they need to work with social care and social care saying, no, they need more therapeutic work. And then in the middle of that, the dual diagnosis, because they're then self-medicating with substances and that Mm -hmm. brings in even more complications and other challenging behaviour. And you're right, it is difficult to actually be really clear of how can we work together for this in the best needs of that young person. But I'm interested from your perspective as well, kind of, I guess, that crossover between the clinical practice and the academia and that feeding into your learning as you're recognising the importance of prevention.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was really lucky in my early career that, I kind of got to work with some of the best people in my profession and they were academics and clinicians at the same time. So when I started asking these questions about why is it that pretty much everybody I'm working with has got a history of trauma, but yet they're being treated for this illness called schizophrenia, which that's another discussion we don't want to go into, but I don't like the term. It doesn't really mean anything. But yeah, the question was, why are all these people with a history of adversity and trauma being treated for a mental illness? I was confused by that, genuinely. I started having those conversations with the people that I work with, and what we started to recognize was that people with trauma in their lives generally struggle to cope. A lot of people recover from trauma, of course, and, and grow from it, and it doesn't disable them or make them unwell. A lot of people bounce back. But for the people we were seeing, people who seeking help for psychosis and serious mental health issues, it just seemed odd that pretty much all of them had experienced trauma or adversity that was significant. So we started asking the questions at that point, you know, why is this? Is it that trauma leads to poor mental health? Is it that when bad things happen to people, it means it's just hard for them to cope with life or with relationships or with their mental health? So we started asking those questions. And early on, we started looking at the links between traumatic experiences and presentation of psychosis. So I think 1999 was the first publication we did looking at whether the experience of hospital, psychiatric hospital, was traumatic for people. We surveyed a group of people who were admitted to a psychiatric ward in Manchester, and we found that I think it was 48% of people in that psychiatric ward met criteria for PTSD based on their experiences of becoming unwell and being in hospital. So... I mean, that's an example of where trauma informed practice is really essential, that what we want to do is never go back there where the the actual experience of becoming unwell and being hospitalized is actually traumatic. We're making a bad situation worse, essentially. So that was one of the starting points for me in terms of pursuing the academic understanding of what trauma contributes to serious mental health problems, because at the time the predominant belief was serious mental health issues like psychosis are caused by imbalances in your neurochemistry. They're caused by too much dopamine. They're caused by, in part, genetic inheritance and things like that. So to actually start questioning whether trauma can actually lead to serious mental health issues was quite controversial at the time. And then in 2003, we published another paper which basically outlined a model for understanding how, when someone's been through trauma, that can lead to a person being diagnosed with this thing we call psychosis. So that's kind of how my interest in trauma and clinical practice sort of linked together because the paper in 2003 basically said this is how you can formulate trauma and adversity in the context of serious mental health issues and how it can lead to a treatment response, which at the time there weren't any. You know, there were no manuals or treatment manuals or specific guidance on how to treat trauma within the context of psychosis. So that's kind of the start of it. But then when you recognize that it's not just about brain chemistry and genes that lead to psychosis, for example, you can then start to say, well, if we could prevent trauma and adversity happening in people's lives in the first place, you know, if we could make sure that people didn't experience sexual abuse or physical abuse or being exposed to domestic abuse, then maybe we'd see less of these severe reactions that people have. And that's kind of where I'm at today, really, recognizing that we can prevent a lot of mental health problems. You know, we can prevent a significant proportion of psychoses. If we were able to reduce exposure to traumatising experiences and childhood adversity and then provide early help and intervention for the people that unfortunately have been affected by it. I think that's a short version of how I've gone from the clinical realisation to the academic study through to the focus on prevention more latterly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's really clear. And for me, I guess, reaffirming hearing you talk about your recognition as you've gone through your career and then why you've connected those points together from a clinical practitioner perspective, but also from an academic perspective. Because I'm completely sold on what you say. I talk to this topic regularly, but I talk to it from the perspective of having and experiencing adverse childhood experiences, and then going through that process into my life and then working operationally, and again, going to university and getting the the academic backup and understanding. But it's been a journey of true realisation that actually, I say this regularly, to change people's lives, to interrupt that generational cycle of abuse, to give people Different opportunities and circumstances. Actually, it isn't rocket science. Mm -hmm. We look back at some of the academia, we look back at some of the studies that are talking to all of the different clinical ways of working with people, and absolutely most of them have real value from a best practice perspective. But also, it's about looking at that prevention from those really simple things that we can do as practitioners every day. And I champion very much within our training organisation, Tay Training, we champion very much about actually that building of that emotional resilience, that coming from a trauma-informed perspective and writing that into everything that you do. So from all of the different services, from housing, from homelessness, from family support services, before you get to that clinical level, all of those other levels of support that come in, usually come in at an earlier stage than the clinicians come in. Actually, they should all be coming from that real trauma-informed perspective and really help their staff to understand that if you have this wider perspective, you can make change every day within the role that you're undertaking. It's not all complicated psychology. Some of it is very ordinary, normal actions. Absolutely. But I
2: think what I will say is, I know I said that I was perhaps in a very niche silo for a long time. That's true. But I also think that it was really important to challenge that received wisdom. The received wisdom being too much dopamine and faulty neurons and family history leads to psychosis. That's just one example of the the biomedical perspective on emotional health. But it was really important that we challenged that idea. We published a book in 2006 called Trauma and Psychosis. And it was ultimately about saying, look, Some of this is preventable because it's a consequence of life events. And therefore, if it's a consequence of life events, we need to do two things. One is ideally we need to prevent it from happening in the first place. That's the ultimate goal. And then the second thing is we need to develop treatments and interventions for people that have been affected by it. So rather than accepting that the treatment was drugs and hospital or ECT, which is another whole other story, which should be suspended until we have adequate evidence for its uh, efficacy and safety. But anyway, it's another story. You've got to ask yourself, is treating the symptoms with medication and ECT and hospital an appropriate solution when you know that the origins of that pain and distress is in actual real-life events? So our belief was we had to first acknowledge that this was biopsychosocial in nature and that it was originated in trauma. And actually, as a result of that, we need to recognize we can prevent it, number one. And number two, we can create interventions and treatments that are appropriately weighing and balancing and give an equal value to the biological, the social, and the psychological aspects of it, which then led to talking therapies for people with serious mental health issues and trauma, which was something that back then didn't happen very often, to be honest. There was very few approaches for people with serious mental health issues like psychosis and trauma. You know, that was just something that people kind of shied away from, really. And fundamentally, he said, some of the things that we need to do are not rocket science. For me, one of those important features of what we were doing was asking people what happened to them. Rather than someone comes to see you and they talk to you about their voices or their paranoia or whatever, rather than focusing on that, you start by saying, so as part of our assessment, I'm going to ask you what happened in your life. That for me sounds completely obvious and ridiculous to say that I'm still talking about it 20-odd years later. I'm still advocating for inquiry about adversity and trauma as part of a routine approach for people who are seeking help. But it's still not widespread. It's still not something that happens in most services. People might ask about domestic abuse, or they might ask about drug and alcohol use or, or whatever. But it's very rare for services to ask routinely about, you know, the whole range of adversities that we know are very common in our society. And I think because of that, people don't get the right help they need or they get inappropriate treatment, or in fact, they just don't tell anybody, no one asks them, so they just continue being in distress or being harmed. So fundamentally, I think we have to start with the basics, which are ask people who are seeking help about their experiences of adversity and trauma, and then ask them, is it still affecting them? Is it still happening? And do they need some help with it?
0: Yeah, and it sounds, when you put it like that, it sounds so simple, but it also gets very much entwined with life, doesn't it? And the services that are available, funding that's available, the direction that a service is going in. And we have to continually remind ourselves that when we're talking about this, we're talking about individual people and we're talking about their lives. And actually, that's a huge, huge deal when you think of that one person and everybody that they're going to be involved in and they're going to affect and impact and influence. And then that continues. And I gave the examples earlier about from a generational perspective as well. So it's about really, you know, the power of this is real long-lasting and can have a huge impact.
2: Yeah, I'm always impressed by the response of professionals and workers. So I've been delivering an approach called REACH, routine inquiry about adversity in childhood for probably about the last 10 years in various forms. But ultimately, it's a program of change for services and teams that helps them introduce routine or targeted inquiry about adversity as part of their assessment. And there's a lot of controversy about screening, you know, this notion of screening for aces that they're doing in America. There's a lot of controversy about that. And I understand that because I don't think screening is an appropriate approach for the UK. We have a very different system. We have a very different setup. The response we can offer is different in different areas. So I don't think screening is appropriate. I mean, screening supposes that we take a bunch of healthy people and we screen them for a condition which we might be able to intervene in earlier and protect them. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people seek our help because they're having a problem. They come to us for help. We conduct an assessment and as part of that assessment and our duty of care, we ask them what's happened in their lives because we know that the majority of people that are seeking help will have experienced adversity based on the data. We do what we call in America universal precautions. So we just assume that this will be relevant for most people and therefore we design our service response around that idea. So The idea is we ask help-seeking people what's happened in their lives in an appropriate way, and we essentially provide a little bit of support and training to teams and to professionals and workers so that they feel confident in asking these questions as part of their assessment. It makes sense to the service user. They know how to respond sensitively, and they know how to respond in a way that is potentially therapeutic for that person.
0: REACH sounds like something that I certainly want to find out more about, Warren. I wonder mm. if you mind just telling our listeners, if they're listening to this and thinking, actually, I really want to know a little bit more about REACH and the method that Warren's describing. How can they find out more about that?
2: Well, I can certainly provide more information about that. I mean, I've been doing it in my own practice for over 20 years. It, what we call in clinical psychology an idiosyncratic formulation, a shared understanding of how someone's past relates to their current difficulties and how those current difficulties are being maintained or not, you know, what helps and what doesn't. So for me as a clinical psychologist, it's just what I've always done. And because I knew that most people I worked with had experienced trauma, it just was a central part of my assessment. So that's kind of always been what I've done. But the last, the last few years, when I was working in first episode psychosis services, following a number of away days, that the people in our team said, We could do with some training around this because trauma and disclosures of abuse and things like that come up very regularly because it seems like most of our clients have experienced these things, but we've not had any specific training about it. So I decided that I'd put together a brief training session and some guidance around how we could do this in the service and basically train the whole hundred staff in the service. So that's how it started. And basically now, you know, a few years on, it's evolved through various evaluations and research studies and we've got to a version that has got the essential ingredients. Because what many of us and many of people who'll be listening will know from past experiences that standalone training, and you'll know especially Tommy, you know, if you just go and do a one off training session for a team or an organization, it can be the best education in the world, but the chances of it making a lasting difference are variable. Yeah. What actually we, we learned over the years was when you're asking teams to change their practice and to do something that initially seems counterintuitive, because most professionals will say, well, I don't want to upset people. That's why I don't ask these questions. Or I'm not a therapist, so I'm not sure if it's my job to be asking people about the bad stuff that's happened in their lives. Or maybe I don't want to make it worse. I don't upset them. There's a lot of professional anxiety about asking people about the negative things, the traumatic things that have happened in their lives. So part of the learning and part of the training and the approach that we developed was to say, this isn't just a one-off training session. This is a process.
0: That's brilliant, Warren. The REACH model sounds perfect. And I think our listeners will certainly like to hear more about it, as would I. Where can we find more information?
2: Well, I can send you some more information for your website. We've done a lot of evaluations over the years and yeah, written various articles and published various things. So I can send you some things for the website, and also people can have a look at my website, which is warrenlarkinassociates.co.uk, and if a look at the tab that says routine inquiry. That will be good.
0: Fantastic, that's perfect. And I think looking at those resources will be really useful for people. So I really appreciate that. Oh, but no problem. What's really interested me as well, though, is when we've been talking recently you've been applying some of this extensive learning and academia and kind of your experience over the years to what's happening at the moment with COVID-19. And in particular, what speaks to me is the work that you've been doing to focus on actually frontline professionals at the moment and the importance of recognising how frontline professionals are just like everybody else, are We've got multifaceted levels and at the moment all of our lives are colliding slightly with the home and the work colliding. And it's really dear to my heart and something we talk about a lot at Tay Training about we have to, as a sector, really start recognising and valuing our frontline professionals. Because they have the absolute honour and privilege of delivering services that have the power to really support and transform people within their lives. But actually, sometimes we don't recognize our frontline professionals in that way. We expect more and more of them. Yeah. And as society is under a lot of pressure at the moment, funding is well, funding has been for a while in short supply, yeah. caseloads are increasing, and our frontline professionals are still turning up every day, and in most instances, absolutely doing the best job they can. Yeah,
2: absolutely,
0: yeah. So I'd be really interested in you telling us a little bit more about the Resilience Task force and. You're really hoping to champion a campaign about this, aren't you? And I hope that our members and us as an association can really get involved and help you with that.
2: Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I appreciate your support with that. I, mean, I suppose in terms of supporting the front line in this period of public health crisis, I mean, there are a number of things that I think are helpful. I mean, one of the things before we move on to the big global picture is You know, I'm currently working with GPs in Scotland and in in other parts of the country and abroad, actually, with getting them equipped and trained to deal with the disclosures that people are going to make when they start having face-to-face appointments again. I was talking to a GP today who was saying that they're just not ready for the tidal wave of distress that they're going to be seeing when they get face-to-face with people because what we're seeing at the minute is the tip of the iceberg. And it's people aren't having those confidential opportunities to disclose and tell the trusted GP about what's been going on whilst they've been locked down in these difficult situations. So I think part of this response is about recognizing the demand on frontline practitioners and making sure that we can equip them to try and support individuals who, because there's two kinds of people that seem to be particularly affected by this. One group is people who've already had existing mental health issues. They seem to be getting worse. And then you've got people who didn't have pre-existing mental health issues that are tipping that way. So I think there's something very much about helping the primary care level to support people effectively enough so they don't end up in mental health services. So I think supporting that initial frontline response is really important. Bigger than that, talking about the Resilience Task Force. So myself and Sir Norman Lamb have been talking about this for a while, and we've been looking at the statistics and the reports that are coming out related to this period of lockdown and this public health crisis, and what we're seeing is increased rates of people expressing and describing psychological distress. We're seeing increased rates of demand on mental health services. We're seeing increased domestic abuse and violence. We're seeing increases in drug and alcohol issues. We've seen increases in young people ringing support lines and saying they're worried about their own mental health and that of the parents. We're seeing more children going missing now. That seemed to kind of reduce at the beginning of the lockdown, but now it seems to be going up again. And also there's an increase in online child abuse activity, which is very worrying as well. So we looked at all of that and then factored in the fact that we've got a recession, and also the pre-existing deficit in the workforce and the NHS and the retention issues and the turnover issues we've got in many other parts of the system. And we just figured, well, there doesn't seem to be a coherent whole of society national response plan for that. There doesn't seem to be any talk about it. There's obviously a huge response to the physical health threat, but there doesn't seem to be a plan or a coherent narrative around what we're going to do to tackle the psychological and social consequences of this period which essentially has just manifest and amplified many of the problems that were there already. But we know that those issues, those adversities and those traumas, those things that are happening to people now, especially given that they're cut off from the usual sources of support and resilience, they're going to have long lasting impact. The human cost and the economic cost of this period in society is going to be, unless we intervene, unless we can do something to mitigate it, It's going to be massive. So that's kind of in a nutshell why we decided to write to Mark Hancock and ask him to set up a cross-sector multi-agency task force that would look at the short, medium and long term and look at the lessons learned from this pandemic, look at the consequences across society and put some plans in place, but also look at the future as well and see this as a a moment in time where we can step back and say, you know what, we don't have an equal society and we certainly don't have an equal access to mental health, social care and physical health care. There's an absolute industry around supporting people's physical health, which is great. You know, we all benefit from that. But when you look at the disproportionate investment in mental health services, you think that's just not going to be sufficient. It's not efficient. now. it's certainly not going to be sufficient when we see the full extent of the impacts of this situation.
0: So thinking about the Resilience Task Force, it's quite a big ask and it's fantastic that you're looking to lead a campaign in this way. But how are you envisaging it will work and come together?
2: Well, so I was lucky enough to be part of the Children's Emotional Health and Wellbeing Task Force in 2015, which Norman Lamb convened when he was minister. And that was about looking at the Children's Emotional Health and Wellbeing system, in other words, what most people would call CAMHS and related services. That was a fantastic experience for me because I've been in the NHS for probably 18 years or something by that point, so I felt I had a fair bit of perspective. In that room, we worked together over like six months. It was a really diverse cross-sector group. It was young people, their families, academics, clinicians, third sector, you know, you name it. There was representation. And it led to a really important report called Future in Mind. And that report then, yeah, there was some money attached to it, of course. But that report ultimately, when Norman Lamb convened that task force, there was a commitment to act on the recommendations and the reforms that were outlined in that document. And that was really important, so that's why we need the government to give us a mandate and to convene this Resilience Task Force, because ultimately no single agency has got all the answers. Funding one particular sector, for example, 76 million pounds was given to domestic abuse services, which is wonderful, but that is a benefit to a particular part of the sector. It's not going to solve the society-wide impacts, the social, psychological, and economic impacts of what's happened. So we want that diversity and that connectedness that you mentioned earlier, and we want that integrated understanding. And we want to be able to work together to come up with some short-term actions, you know, looking at best practice, looking at what's been effective during this period of lockdown, looking at whether some of that stuff can be extended to be part of the resilience response for society, tackling isolation, tackling poverty, connecting people up, making access to mental health services easier for people so that they get help when they need it, So there's some of that learning from what happened, what was good, and what we were able to do during this period of duress. But there's also looking at, you know, what do we do medium long term? Because we knew that some of these things were going to happen. After every natural disaster, you see an increase in family violence. That's not a surprise. In every recession, you see an increase in mental health problems and suicide. That's not a surprise. And we already know that mental health services are underfunded and under-resourced, and that they're going to come under more pressure during a period of recession. So... It's about the short-term response and helping people know, not tip into mental health problems, social problems, alcoholism, drug problems, keeping them on the appropriate side of coping. But it's also about looking at the longer term and the bigger picture. It's not a quick fix. It's a piece of work that's going to be significant and important. But I think the crucial thing is that we get a response from government. And what we're offering is a collaborative, helpful, proactive response. You know, we've got 80 odd organisations supporting our campaign. We've got some really big, credible agencies and organizations who've got a lot of experience and a lot of expertise. And we're just saying, look, we want to help. We want to find a collective solution. None of us have got all the answers. So engage with us. Let's get ourselves together and let's come up with some plans and some ideas and some recommendations and some learning from what's gone well and what we can do better in the future. We called it Resilience Task Force because We wanted to emphasize that this is really about promoting wellness, keeping people in a place where they can cope, creating solutions that help people stay well. You know, in public health, there's that whole concept of pathogenesis, which basically means we spend our time looking at what's gone wrong with people and why they have got sick as opposed to salutogenesis, which is where we look at what preserves and promotes health. And one of the things that we know a lot about is resilience and the things that promote human well-being. So we thought that term was appropriate because actually what we want to do is keep people well. We want to maintain their ability to cope. And most people do bounce back following adversity and trauma. Most people do. But Significant numbers of people don't, so they struggle and they'll continue to struggle just because of the nature of what they've been through and the lack of access to protective resources that they've had. So we wanted to have an optimistic title that reflected what we know about the evidence in terms of people who have more resilience assets, people who feel more connected and not isolated, people who have some financial security, people who feel part of the community, children who have safe, stable, nurturing adults, they cope better when things are stressful. So... That's kind of why we we wanted to call it Resilience Task Force in the first place, because we felt like that was an important concept.
0: Well, I can see completely. And you're just reminding me there of a TEDx talk that I did at the back end of last year that talked to my childhood. And actually everything you're saying there, I'm sitting here nodding my head going, yep, 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 that's what made the difference. Yep. Yeah, and that. So really, really important. And I think so important to have that real positive approach and actually moving forward from a reactionary, absolutely, because of the situation we're in with COVID, but also still recognition of that importance of prevention. Because as we build up this task force, we are responding, but we will be preventing again from that impact on that next generation. Yeah, completely.
2: And the other thing we wanted to emphasize was that most of those things that we've just mentioned, or i've just mentioned around what builds resilience, what protects people from the impacts of stress and trauma, they 're not expensive technical medical interventions they're social interventions they're social factors, their relationships, their connectedness, their safety they're about trust and love and nurture and feeling that someone's there for you, not being isolated they're the social needs of human beings so I think the good news is as well that a lot of the things that help people cope and help people overcome stress and trauma. Some people of course do need specialist support and specialist help, and that's what I spent my career doing. But many, many people will benefit and cope better with feeling part of their school community, feeling, you know, supported in their neighbourhood, living in a place that feels safe and secure, not being poor. You know, there's all, all of these things that kind of some of us take for granted are actually the wider determinants of health and wellbeing. So I think that, for me, that's also hopeful because what we're not doing is pathologizing anybody and we're not saying, oh, you're unwell because you haven't got enough resilience. We're not saying that. What we're saying is we know that in the absence of certain things, human beings struggle to cope, especially in the context of high levels of stress and adversity. So we're just saying we want a bit more of a level playing field. We want to make sure people have got what they need to stay well. Um, I think,
0: importantly, people deserve it as well.
2: Completely, yeah. Clearly, there's huge inequalities in our society. And we've seen this coronavirus, I think, at the beginning. People were saying, oh, we're all in this together. And then actually, it becomes apparent that we're not all in this together, are we? Because it's just widening those inequalities. And it's shining a light on them. So, yeah, everyone deserves good health and well-being. And some of that is socially determined.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the first step of that, Warren, is that about the campaign and really getting the government to listen to how important this is and put some funding and momentum behind it?
2: Yeah, I think the first step is an acknowledgement that this is a big, complex set of issues that is arising out of this public health crisis, and that we can place equal importance and consideration on the social and psychological consequences, as we have done with the physical consequences. So I think, yeah, the initial step is to acknowledge that there's an issue and to agree to work with us to find some resolutions to it, find some solutions. We're not asking for anything that is out of step with what we've seen in other countries. The World Health Organization and the United Nations are both saying, in their policy briefings, they're saying governments need to be looking at the serious mental health consequences of the pandemic and based on this and previous pandemics we know what the impacts are going to be so it's not like we're asking for anything that is outlandish or uncertain what we're doing is saying we recognize this is a big issue it's going to be challenging but we as a collective think we have enough knowledge and expertise and experience to be able to find some solutions and learn some lessons from it.
0: Fantastic. And how can we as an association and how can our members really get behind this campaign and help bring some strength to it? Because we have a real diverse group of members from frontline professionals, police officers, social workers, academics nurses we really do have kind of real selection and we have students in there as well who really like to get behind some campaigns and i just think that it will be useful for us to recognize actually what can we do that will make a difference and add some power and strength yeah. to this campaign from a whole host of people that work to ensure that child protection is happening and is happening yeah, at the yeah. highest standard
2: well, I think we all make a contribution. And, and I guess what I've learned during my career in the NHS and then after that more recently is that we all have an influence. You know, We all have a sphere of influence. We all have urgency. We can all get people to care about the things that we care about. That's, I feel that's what I've probably spent my whole career doing is trying to get people to care about the things that I care about in terms of how we improve and reform the system a little bit. So I would say you can go to the website, resilientstaskforce.co.uk, And you can read the open letter that we wrote to Matt Hancock. You can see some of the, there's a few documents on there that people have written that give examples of why this is important. There's some videos. We've got a place where people can pledge their support. And we've had over 100 individuals and organizations pledging their support in the last two weeks. We've got some really high-profile people supporting us as well. So, um, yeah, we want as many people as possible to sign up at the website. We'll keep you up to date with emails and information. We're at some stage going to convene a virtual meeting of some kind to kind of look at the progress to date and think about next steps, really. The other thing we've got on the website is a template letter, some campaign assets that people can download and use in social media, and also writing to your MP. People forget that, certainly I forget, that I've got power and a mandate to go to my MP and share my concerns and that their duty is then to represent my concerns as far as possible in their parliamentary role. So I think the more people that write to their MP, that talk about it on social media, that talk to their friends about it, that spread the word, the better, really. Because what we know is that this problem is not going away. I think the worst thing that can happen is collectively as a society, we decide, well, now the are numbers dropped and we can all go about our business, that it's kind of business as usual. I think that's a real mistake. I think a lot of the harms that have happened are hidden on a day-to-day basis. And it's perhaps only the professionals on the sharp end of it that are seeing the damage that's being caused in society. So I think it will be a big mistake to think that this pandemic and the consequences of it are over. There'll be a lot of people living with the consequences of it for a long time. So I think the more awareness, the better. And the more people are talking about it, the more people are discussing these issues, the better. So yeah, in short, go to website, have a read, sign up, and we'll keep you informed, keep you on our mailing list and um, try and get you involved.
0: Brilliant. And you'll see along with our members that we've signed up to this. We think it's a really important campaign and we'd really love to be part of it. So we'll be sharing those social media templates and things like that. We'll be writing to our MPs and then following up with some of the information and news that you share with us. And we'd also love to send out via email to our membership your campaign information as well. So then everybody will see it from different directions. And we all know that actually it takes us a little bit of time to understand process and then decide what action we want to take within that.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we're looking for ideas as well at the end of the day. You know, we're not saying we've got all the ideas, we've got all the solutions, but we're ultimately looking for ways to influence and persuade the government to take this seriously and to connect with us and say, yeah, we want to work with you on this. We want to take this really seriously and take it as seriously as the physical health response has been. That's ultimately what we're asking for.
0: I guess an open offer to all of our members. If anybody does have any ideas, any thoughts, really want to get involved and support this campaign, Warren's details will be in the show notes and you can come back to us as an association and share your ideas with us. And we really look forward to supporting Warren and everybody who's involved in this campaign into really putting forward what the arguments are for ensuring that actually we look out for people holistically
2: yeah and ultimately it's about improving the quality of our society and you can't have a well-functioning society without good emotional and social well-being and for me it's like a social justice issue as well you know we can't sit back and think that the current status quo is acceptable because it isn't and if we do something about it it's the benefit of everybody so if anybody's listening who's got access to one of the ministers or Know somebody who knows somebody. Let me know because often these things become successful via the most unexpected routes. So I think uh, the more conversations we have, and please feel free to contact me directly as well if you think you might have any ideas about how we can get a result.
0: That's great. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Warren, and I really look forward to being part of this campaign and helping to champion change along with the association. Is there anything else that you would really like to tell our listeners whilst we're here or anything else that you'd like to cover whilst you've got this opportunity?
2: Um, well, I looked at your journal earlier and I thought it was fantastic. Uh, uh, it is
0: fantastic, thank yeah,
2: you. <laughs> I'm a new member and... I looked at the journal and you know straight away I saw several things that I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. We've got some like really serious academics and clinicians working in this field and they're writing in your journal, which is amazing. So I just wanted to give you kudos for that, really. I thought it was fantastic.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we are very, very proud of Child Abuse Review. And we do have some amazing people writing for the journal and submitting articles. And one of the things that we're really proud about is being a membership that really does base our information on evidence-based practice. And that's really important to us.
2: Yes, but I thought it was really excellent.
0: Uh, well, thank you very much for coming along and talking to me today, Warren. I think our listeners will have got a lot of value from hearing about your journey and actually your recognition and understanding of the importance of prevention within that as well. We're really looking forward to getting involved and helping to champion the Resilience Task Force, and our listeners will see this across our social media and we will send emails out and things like that. So thank you again for being our podcast guest today, and we're thrilled that you've joined the membership and look forward to seeing you in our members meetings as well.
2: Oh, thanks very much, Tammy. I've really enjoyed talking to you. My brain power is probably 50% of what it would normally be because of the heat. And I am from the north of England, so I'm not used to it. Um, I only properly function in the rain and the wet weather. So, you know, thanks for putting up with me today.
0: Brilliant. Well, have a nice rest of your day.
2: Thanks, Tammy. Lovely to talk to you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Association of Child Protection Professionals podcast today. If there are any specific topics you'd like discussed in future episodes, please email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you'd like more information about becoming a member, visit our website, childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thanks. Hello, I'm Tyra, the podcast producer for the
1: AOCPP. After recording this episode with Warren, we got onto the subject of moments in his career that truly impacted him. And with Warren's permission, we realised that this is a story we had to share with you. So enjoy this bonus story from the behind the scenes of our interview. Thank you.
2: So yeah, when I was was working at Prestwich Hospital, I used to run a, a men's group and it was meant to be kind of helping people remember things and reminisce and and kind of be reassuring and and give people a sense of safety and and familiarity of things that they remember well you know so i used to go in this room and this guy would be waiting for me so a guy that let's call him john and he didn't speak john had not spoken for over 20 years according to the staff and i used to just chat to him as if he was going to talk back to me you know he never did, uh, not for a long time while I was there did I hear a word out of his mouth. But he used to be waiting for me every every Wednesday afternoon when I was there to do the men's group. He'd be waiting for me at the door. And they said, this is really unusual. He, he doesn't really engage in things normally. But every every Wednesday for 18 months, he would be waiting for me at the door, which was I, I thought was quite nice, quite touching, really. And uh, then we, then he'd just sit in the groups, and he didn't smoke. And the only reason I think a lot of the guys came to the groups because he smoked, because they smoked, and I give them cigarettes. And he'd just sit there and listen to everybody, but he wouldn't. Again, he would never say anything. This went on for eighteen months, and and just as I was about to finish my poster, it was just approaching Christmas, and I went to sort of say my goodbyes on the ward. So I did my rounds, I went to speak to all the guys and the staff, and, and was just saying, you know, telling them I was leaving and stuff. And um, I went over to this guy, John, and sat next to him. He was in the corner, as usual, stood against the wall. And uh, I just said, well, I'm not going to be here much longer, so if you want to talk to me, if there's anything you want to chat about, now's the time, you know. It's only been 18 months, that so I've known you nearly two years. What, what is it about time we had a chat? And uh, nothing, as usual. And then um, I said to him, come on, John, is there anything you want to talk about? And he went, no, not really. <laughs> and I said, sorry? What, what was that? And he went, no, nah, nothing I really want to talk about. And that was it. Never another word. The staff wouldn't believe me. They thought I was winding him up because I was leaving. But that guy, that's the thing, the connectedness, you know, the trust, the making somebody feel safe, making somebody feel valued. He he decided to connect with me that day. He'd been connected with me all along by waiting for me at the door every Wednesday. But he, he opened himself up to me, and he, he'd not done that for a long time. So for me, that was a huge gesture. It must have been a massive thing for him to sort of speak to anybody, because nobody else had heard him speak for years. So um that was a, a very important lesson for me. That it's the relationship that makes the difference, you know. I didn't have any technical skills or anything at the time. I was an assistant on the ward, but I think the power of the relationship was what made the difference. So I shall yes. never forget that lesson.
0: Absolutely. And that sounds a really powerful way of learning it as well.
2: Yeah, I think about it a lot. It was a connection. We had a connection. You know, we, we made each other feel respected and, and there was a mutual you know it was a mutual value there that we both sensed and yeah it meant something it meant a lot to me i hope it meant something to him as well so uh yeah the relationship's what makes the difference and and that's where we you know that's where we kind of uh, started when we talked about resilience